Hello, I'm Stephen Fine, the Corgan Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University, and welcome to this episode of Scroll Up, a Yeshiva University podcast. This episode is presented in conjunction with the Jewish Book Council. The Jewish Book Council is a nonprofit that enriches and educates the Jewish community through literature, from public programs, awards, and conferences to essays by Jewish authors, book clubs, resources, interviews, and reading lists. JBC provides tools for substantive conversations about Jewish life and identity. I'm here with Malka Simkovich, author of Discovering Second Temple Literature, The Scriptures and Stories That Shaped Early Judaism, published in 2018 by the Jewish Publication Society of America. Welcome, Malka, to Yeshiva University. Thank you. So happy to be here. I'm thrilled that you're here with us. Your book is such a, a delight to read. Um, and I read it more than once from cover to cover um, and learned so many exciting things that I, a scholar of the period, could really enjoy. Thank you very much. I have a number of questions for you about your book that, that I think will draw out for our listeners um, some of the important themes, and I'd love to hear how you respond to it. Um, Malka, um, before we even start, what is the Second Temple period and what is Second Temple period literature? Well, this is a great question because a lot of what we have canonized in the Hebrew Bible in the Tanakh actually is Second Temple literature. Some of the late strata of the Hebrew Bible, such as Divrei uh, Hayamim, Chronicles, uh, Ezra Nehemiah, Ezra Nehemiah, um, the Book of Esther, these are all Second Temple texts. But Second Temple literature goes well beyond what we have canonized in the Hebrew Bible. Traditionally, Second Temple literature has been categorized by scholars into five distinct categories. The writings of Philo of Alexandria, who lived in the first century CE. The writings of Josephus, the late first century CE historian from Judea, who later resettled in Rome. The Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, discovered um, only in the second half of the 20th century, uh, which date to probably the first century BC or maybe earlier. The Pseudepigrapha, which is a very tricky category, I'll get to that last. Uh, and the Apocrypha, which many view as a Christian category. This is a set of texts preserved in the Catholic Bible, but these are Jewish texts that mostly date from the second uh, century BCE through the first century CE, written by pious Jews. The last category is a very nebulous and fluid category. It's called the Pseudepigrapha. And this is the category that really observant Jews don't know much about. It's a modern term, the pseudepigrapha, even though it's Greek, it means falsely attributed writings. But the pseudepigrapha is actually a term that we only see following the late 18th century. Uh, this is a collection of texts that really have nothing to do with each other. In the 18th century, Christian, mostly Protestant scholars set about collecting ancient texts that they thought had relevance and meaning and particularly uh theological significance for their own Christian identities. But the fact is that as scholars began to collect these books into the Pseudepigrapha, which has grown and grown and grown, uh, it became increasingly clear that these texts, for the most part, are actually of Jewish origin. And so what do we do, uh, particularly as Jews, what do we do uh, with these texts and how do they affect our self-understanding as Jews? And I think, Steve, before I talk really about the Second Temple period and what that means, we have to understand. I'm coming from a yeshiva day school background, and maybe you are too. 
And what happens when you go through the day school system is that you get a mental timeline. The mental timeline ends with the end of the biblical period, right? So that's usually what are the latest second temple historical figures, Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, right? And then your mental timeline goes to the Mishnah, right? So you end with the Bible. Then so you start with space. the Mishnah. There's a space in but the But not middle. in your mind, right? Not in your mind. Because right. your mind collapses 600 years in between Ezra and the rabbis. But what happens when you have your Tanakh class and then, you know, that's third period, then fourth period, you go to your Talmud class, right? So you have a mental timeline that goes from the end of the Tanakh to the Mishnah. You don't realize that there are 600 years of significant Jewish history there. And so then what happens to Ezra? Ezra becomes a proto-rabbi. And so then we start thinking about Ezra as a proto-rabbinic figure, right? And even though the book of Ezra calls Ezra both a scribe and a priest, Ezra HaSofer, Ezra HaKohen, we see it over and over both of those terms. In our minds, Ezra is Ezra HaSofer because he is a proto-rabbinic scribe who gets us into the rabbinic period. Now, of course, that's totally false, right? That it's is totally false. Totally false. How do you know that it's totally false? Well, it's hard to date Ezra's years, right? And I'm not going to go but into But even this. besides the dating of Ezra, the perception of a period that's collapsed to the point that we only remember about 160-something years of it in Jewish tradition, who we have so little evidence of, is, is astonishing that... that centuries and centuries only remembered 160 something years of a period that's like 600 years long is truly amazing somehow we've gotten to a point where we know a lot more about that time than we ever thought that we would know right and even now you know i'm one of i think a number of scholars who are writing about this period who are trying to push it to the foreground of our minds and trying to push it into this mental timeline that that many uh orthodox Jews have and and still I get a lot of resistance uh, especially from my own community people say well why who cares this is not really part of our tradition right our authentic Jew Jewish tradition doesn't need second temple literature uh it's it's marginal it's liminal uh you know what is a greek text that came out of Alexandria in the second century BC, what does that have to do with my identity as a rabbinic Jew? You mean as someone who follows the Torah the way that most traditional Jews, whether um, conservative or orthodox, and, and in many ways reform, perceive what Judaism is today, how does this ancient literature make a difference, is what you're asking? Yeah, and I think it's a great question. One of the most famous rabbinic texts that many of us know is the first chapter of Avot, which discusses this kind of seamless, organic line of transmission that links the rabbis all the way back to Moses. You mean Moses received Torah from Sinai and gave it to Joshua, and Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and on and on and on, in its complete, easy path from the beginning to the end. Right. Nothing changed. The rabbis are inheritors. They are not innovators. They just kind of were walking out, uh, you know, in the streets of Jerusalem one day and plop, the Torah fell down in front of them. And uh, that includes, of course, the oral law as well. <laughs> right. Now, that's not true. We know when we think about it that the rabbis are incredible innovators and they are inheriting a very complex and ever evolving system of practice. Right. There are commonalities that, you know, all Jews are observing, certainly, but the rabbis are also innovating. So this innovation within the system uh, becomes really important. I always like to say that uh, Reformed Jews change, 
and conservative Jews, well, they evolve. And Orthodox Jews, they develop. <laughs> and so talking about the difference in what you're describing, right? For some people, this is a, a radical shift. For others, this is a developmental shift, and it has to do often with attitude rather than the actual material. In other words, what we bring to the sources. Do we see continuity or do we see discontinuity between this material? And so it sounds to me, Malka, that, that what you're suggesting is that we need to step back every so often and retrace, retrace the steps. Precisely. And I think that the Second Temple Jewish writers do us a lot of favors because they demonstrate that on the one hand, you can be very loyal to your ancestral tradition and carefully preserve the scriptures and keep a common set of practices, Shabbat, Sabbath, dietary law, circumcision. And at the same time, there's incredible creativity in these texts. And I don't know that these authors felt the same uh, resistance that many right-wing Orthodox Jews feel today to the outside world. Uh, you could live in Rome, in Antioch, in Alexandria, and not be Hellenized. This is the big fallacy of Hanukkah, Steve, because I think many of us think that uh, either at this time you were a proto-rabbi, right, carefully observing the Jewish laws, you probably lived in the land of Israel, or you were not at all affiliated, you were Hellenized, you spoke Greek, you had a love affair with the Stoics, right? But that's just not true. Many, many Jews outside of the land of Israel are keeping circumcision, Shabbat, dietary law. But what they're writing is a very enthusiastic uh, tightrope, I think, of, of really embracing what the Greco-Roman world had to offer and also proudly putting on display their Jewish tradition. And so the rabbis are not, um, the rabbis are not in a vacuum. I think, look, I don't know that they were reading all these Jewish texts in Greek, but there is already in place a system in which you could engage with the outside world and also uh, apply a certain degree of creativity to your own tradition. And we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that people who claim to be completely closed off from the world around them never really are. That's a stance, right? And so the notion that anybody in the Greco-Roman world wasn't fully Greco-Roman and wasn't possibly fully Jewish in whatever way they were doing it, um, is maybe ideologically useful, but no one was ever closed off. Everybody drives Japanese cars. Everybody uses the same money. Everyone uses the same nouns, right? Everyone uses these apocalyptic notions of empire, or as you've written about, notions of the individual in the ancient world. I'm really happy that you bring up the Dead Sea sect because I think that the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's unbelievable that we find this whole library that has lain, you know, untouched for thousands of years. But it also uh, has been very problematic and challenging, I think, for scholars of the Second Temple period because the Dead Sea Scrolls get so much playtime, they get so much face time in the public eye. And so when people think of the, De the Second Temple period, they often think, oh, Dead Sea Scrolls. But we have to keep in mind, this represents a tiny, tiny population, not just of the sectarian groups in the land of Israel, not just of the Jews in the land of Israel, but in terms of the Jewish population in the Greco-Roman world, what percentage of those Jews were in a sect? What percentage of those Jews were in a sect that had retreated to the wilderness? This isn't even an Essene group. This is a sub-Essene group, right? They are so extreme. And even those people, like you are saying, were still 
aware of what was happening outside, even if they wouldn't really admit it. Um, and so the majority of Jews are not sectarian. And this is really important to keep in mind because I think that the Second Temple period gets a bad rap uh, as fractured, as sectarian, as divisive, as legalistic. Um, that's just a tiny piece of the puzzle. Yeah, but most books, most of the primers in this subject that have come out have focused on the division, what makes Jews different, what makes the different Jewish groups separate, sort of written by people who in our modern world are writing conservative and orthodox and reform and new age as separate kinds of Judaism or worse Judaisms. And, and you've made it very clear that we're dealing not with in the ancient world, separate groups, but one group with all sorts of strange stuff going on inside of it, which, by the way, I think is what's going on in our world as well. I was just going to say that because if I were to say to you, Steve, what's going on? How are you? I have a question. Are you a Jew or are you an American? Right? What would you say to that? If I were to say to a Jew in the ancient world, are you a Greek or are you a Jew? And again, I think that Hanukkah does not do us any favors here because we've grown up with this artificial binary. The fact is many Jews lived outside and inside the land of Israel with this notion that they were Greek, you know, or at least deeply affected by the Hellenistic world. Uh, and so the majority of Jews are not viewing that as a binary at all. But the binary was really set up by Christians um, mostly in the early modern period, to set Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Germans and English and French as opposites that could never come together. And so this is being projected back to, back to King David, where Goliath is the Greek and David is the Hebrew, and the two will never come together again, um, which was never the story of Hanukkah, because after all, as you've written, the books of Maccabees, which tell us the stories of Hanukkah, and as I've written, the archaeological sources that tell us how these people really lived show people completely integrated, but not always liking every element of the world in which they functioned. And this is one of the really fun things about what I do, because we actually do have a text in the Apocrypha, uh, Second Maccabees. So Second Maccabees does something that Every other ancient source about uh, that talks about the story of Hanukkah uh, does not do. Second Maccabees does uh, present this story as a conflict of cultures. It's the first Greek text to use the word Judaism, and it uses Judaism in conflict with Hellenism. But there's an irony here. The irony is that the Greek stylistics of Second Maccabees is so sophisticated. And the author is using all these literary techniques that are clearly borrowed uh, by the highest, uh, you know, the, the most sophisticated Greek writers. And so we have a text that does present the story of Hanukkah as being uh, a story of clashing cultures. And even this text uh, is, <laughs> the author is um, using using all these literary techniques that were Greek. You have to be a part of that world. This fellow, Jason of Cyrene from North Africa, from a Greek-speaking community, ideologically separated himself from the people that he lived with and said, there's the Greeks that I live with, 
and there's the Hebrews who live over there in Eretz Israel. That's his own identity place that he's trying to construct for himself. And it's not historically correct. What I like to tell my students is that just like today, when you have Jews in Tel Aviv eating shrimp and you have Jews in New York who don't send their kids to a secular school or secular college, in the ancient world, there was no correlation between where you lived and what level of piety you had. So you could live in Alexandria and assiduously read the scriptures every week and you would keep dietary laws, circumcision, Shabbat. Or you could live in the land of Israel and you'd be Hellenized. We know that there were Hellenized Jews in Judea. Likewise, there's no correlation between what name you had. You could be Aristobulus, the pious Jew, right? Or you could be Menashe, the uh, you know apostate Jew. There was no correlation between what language you spoke and your level of piety. You could be a Greek-speaking Jew, and again, you'd be very, very pious. You could be a Hebrew-speaking or Aramaic-speaking Jew and not be observing your ancestral law. So to make these geographic boundary lines, it's a big mistake. And I think, unfortunately, these... Uh, false binaries come out this time of year during Hanukkah. And so the, the Hanukkah story, the one that we relive every year at this time, is a far more complex and interesting story of how we construct who we are at this moment as much as it's about how we understand these folks who lived more than 2,000 years ago who are no less complex than we are. That's absolutely right. Josephus even tells us about a high priest named Onias, who was an anti-Hellenizer, who ends up being kicked out of Jerusalem, or he escapes with uh, for his life, because there are uh, Hellenizers who are taking over the temple administration. So Onias goes to Egypt and gets permission from the king Ptolemy there to build a temple. And we might think, that's crazy, another temple in the second temple period, there was more than one temple. This other temple must have been totally heretical. Must be like, you know, this Jew Hellenized or, or became a pagan or whatever. But actually, this is a pious priest named Onias who builds a temple in Egypt and people come. People go use this temple. Meanwhile, the Jerusalem temple is full of Hellenizers. So the picture is not totally uh, clear. It is not simple. It's very, very complex. Now, your, your book which is written, I must say, in, in very clear language that, uh, that I'm sure my students are going to enjoy reading, um, provides a entree to this material, um, which is different from the others because it stands outside and says, gee, these artifacts that we're talking about, these texts that we're talking about, come from a place and a time, but they didn't always exist. They came into our world really recently. And what's unusual about your book is that it doesn't begin with the scrolls at the Dead Sea, but it tells something of the larger picture of the great discoveries of the 19th century and how they have formed how we perceive Jews and Judaism in the second, third century BCE. What's so fun is that uh, the story of the recovery of these texts, right, they're not discoveries, they're recoveries. But what's interesting is that we have this meta story of academics trying to claim these texts for their own faith tradition. So we kind of have a parallel narrative in my book. Uh, we have this modern account of people like Solomon Schechter and even uh, Professor Lauren Schiffman trying to say, look, these ancient texts – don't read them as proto-Christian. 
right? Don't read them as primarily significant for your self-understanding as Protestant Christian scholars. Actually, these texts belong to our tradition. And the Christian uh, scholars are saying, well, no, we need to look at these through the lens of Jesus, even though, of course, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because these are, of course, mostly texts that preceded the life of Jesus. And so we have this meta story of scholars debating through the lens of their own faith tradition, how do we understand the significance of these ancient texts? And you see it actually in the first three chapters of my book. You see it with Solomon Schechter discovering the Hebrew. Solomon Schechter, who discovered the majority of the um, Cairo Geniza fragments, 400,000 and more of them, brought them to England, brought others to America, and eventually formed a liberal traditionalist movement in America known as the conservative movement today. Very well said, yes. So when Schechter discovers that this Greek apocryphal text known as Bensira uh, actually has a Hebrew original, he finds this to be very significant for restoring the integrity to his own Jewish tradition, whereas scholars said, oh, a Greek wisdom text like Bensira could not have been written by a Hebrew-speaking Jew. It had to have reflect a more intellectual, Hellenized stream of thought that then segued into uh uh, a school of thought that gave way to Christianity or 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 Latin intellectual uh, Roman intellectualism, but Schechter said no. This Bensira Greek text actually has a Hebrew original, and when it was discovered that some of these uh, original Hebrew texts were in the Cairo Geniza. for Schechter, this was really significant in his own battle. Um, against these other scholars who are saying, well, early Judaism could not have had wisdom texts like that. Does this go back to notions that Judaism was somehow inferior during the Second Temple period to Christianity? This is a very old polemic against Judaism. I see you shaking your head. Oh, absolutely. Uh, my first book is on Jewish universalism. And one of the things that I discovered is that when Christian scholars and, and other scholars of any faith will look at early Christian intellectual thought, they love to make connections with the school of Stoicism. So they say, okay, look at the writings of Paul or look at Origin of Alexandria, the early church fathers. Oh, these guys love Stoicism. They must have read all the Stoics. They were really directly influenced by Greek philosophical schools. Well, Maybe not. I believe that Jews in Alexandria and even in the land of Israel in the first century are as a whole influenced by Stoic ideas. And in turn, Paul, being one of those Jews, is influenced not by Stoicism, but by Jews talking about Stoicism. You see the difference? And so the Jews... Um, and, and I'm not talking about Jewish Christians or Jesus followers, but Jews are interested in Stoic ideas. And so it's inaccurate really to say that Christians are reading the Stoics, uh, but more accurate, I think, to say that Christians, who are many of whom are coming from Jewish communities, um, are influenced by Jewish ideas that have been influenced by the Stoics. Now, and so now, that's what's going on. Now, the amazing thing is that 40, 50 years ago when scholars said this, that was almost heresy. When Jewish study scholars came along and said, this early Christian material, we understand this. It fits within what we understand about Judaism. This was almost heresy. It's taken that long, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are really the impetus, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, along with the Second Vatican Council, along with Protestant opening up to Judaism, to look at 
um, early Christianity, the early Jesus movement within the context of Jewish studies to literally cross the tracks from early Christian, uh, early New Testament history into Jewish studies and say, gee, what's going on there? For me, this is one of the interesting things about what we do for a living and about your book, because the book offers a, a readership, um, whether within the Jewish community or, or fond be, far beyond the Jewish community, the capacity to hear how an accomplished Jewish studies scholar understands the broader picture and integrates fully Christian material into the conversation. Right. I teach Catholics for a living. I teach at a Catholic graduate school. And even some of my students still fall into this binary that the Second Temple period was for the Jews a period of continual decline and deterioration. And by the first century, Judaism is a shell of itself. It lost its ethical core. The prophets, which uh, who had spoken about ethics and concern for the vulnerable and the orphans and the widows, the Jews had lost all of that by the first century CE, and the Jews are legalistic and particularistic. And then comes along Jesus, and what does he do? He calls all the good stuff, right? He ignores Leviticus and all the legal things that, you know, the Christians kind of reject, but he calls all the ethical material, and then he starts a new transcendent superior religion. And unfortunately, even today, some Christians still do make that binary. So I view my work as very important, but it's true. In the past 25 and 30 years, scholars have been saying, look, you can't look, you can't study the teachings of Jesus and early Christian literature in opposition to what was happening uh, in the Jewish world. It has to be looked at within the context of Judaism. And of course, I'm not the first person to say that my book is building on that idea. Well, your book is designed to take a, a body of scholarship that's de de that's developed since the 1930s, and make it so that, on the one hand, um, a high school student or a college student or an adult education reader, or, or as I always like to say, my mother, could take the book, enjoy it, read it. I know that reading the preface, your mother was very important for how you wrote it as well. Um, and on the same token, somebody far afield in Senegal or even farther afield down the block at the local, at one of the many churches here in Washington Heights could open up the book and say, oh, I get it. And, and one of the things I loved about the book is that friendly voice that goes all the way through it and says, come on, this is interesting. This is fun, right? This is a, a relationship worth discussing, but at the same token, at the same moment, um, says, hello, I'm me. I'm Malka. Nice to meet you. Um, and I'd like to tell you how I deal with it and how my community deals with it. Right. I think that's true. I am modern Orthodox. I'm a graduate of Stern College of uh, Yeshiva University. I'm very proud to be an alumna of this institution. And I think uh, as somebody who willingly walks the tightrope every day of engaging actively with the outside world and also proudly adhering to my ancestral tradition, I think I would have done super well in the Second Temple period. I think I could have lived uh, in Alexandria and I would have gotten this down, right? I would have visited the library and the museum and read the books and then I would have 
gone home and made a nice kosher meal. My Roman or Greek neighbors would have thought that I was crazy for not eating pork because they thought the Jews were crazy for not eating pork. Uh, That was their main uh, source of meat in those days. So they probably would have um, ribbed me and we would have had lots of jokes together. I think about this because I really think in the Second Temple period, the challenges that Jews in the Second Temple period faced – Uh, when it came to engaging with the Greco-Roman world and also proudly uh, keeping to their traditions and and defending them and viewing them really as uh, not in tension with the Greco-Roman world and its values, but in in a complementary way, I think that's all very relevant to how observant Jews view themselves today. Sure, because your book is part of that larger attempt at harmony that is the ideology of Torah Umada, Yeshiva University's sense that general and large and big knowledge and Torah knowledge go together in, in a really intimate way. One of the things that I find most uh, prescient in your book it appears way at the beginning, and it stayed with me all the way through the book and returned again in the conclusion, and that's a line where you described your four children, and, and this is what you said. Their presence reminds me of the miraculously unlikely survival of the Jewish people and how necessary it is to provide their generation with a nuanced understanding of our history and identity, which an understanding of the Second Temple period strengthens. This is a real calling for you, and in this book you fulfilled that goal really amazingly. And I hope your kids will read these books. I know they've lived with these books over a very long time. I can't tell you how happy I am that you've joined us at YU. And I thank the Jewish Book Council for joining us in this project. And most of all, in this period, which isn't binary, of Hanukkah, where coming together as a whole and as whole, as whole, in a holistic way um, is, is really the miracle of that holiday, as you wrote here, the miraculously unlikely survival of the Jewish people. Um, I wish you, Malka, and all of our listeners a happy Hanukkah full of light. Thank you so much, Steve. This was a great conversation. I'm so happy to be here at Yeshiva University and having this conversation with you today. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scroll Up, a Yeshiva University podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Anchor, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. This episode is produced by Stu Halpern and David Chabinski and edited by David Chabinski. Our audio engineer for this episode was Ellie Gabor. Until next time.